Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction. This show was created to provide accurate expert information and support for those seeking insight into the painful realities of cheating and infidelity, sex and porn addiction, as well as the relationship between chronic drug abuse and paired sexual behavior, commonly known as chemsex. I'm your host, Dr. Rob Weiss, a licensed therapist, addiction specialist, sexologist, clinical educator, and author of 10 books on intimacy, addiction, sexuality, and relationship health. This podcast is a forum for discussing sex, love, and addiction in frank, fact-based, informative ways. My primary goal is to bring you clear advice, opinions, and feedback from some of the world's most renowned experts in human sexuality, trauma, addiction, mental health, and relationship intimacy. This show is sponsored by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs, which are also dedicated to providing expert-focused, highly specialized residential treatment for men struggling with sex, porn, and related addictions. You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. Hey, everybody. I'm glad to hear or see you here on Sex, Love, and Addiction. I think I got a really good show for you today. My colleague and friend, Andrew Suskind, is here to do it with me today. And we're going to talk about, really get into and under, I think, what are the issues that surround recovery, healing? What happens when you've been working on these issues of becoming a better person, working on yourself for a long time, what what can you expect? And where might you still be stuck even if you are moving forward? And so let me tell you a little bit about my friend, Andrew. Andrew Suskind is a licensed clinical social worker. He's a somatic experiencing practitioner. He's a brain spotting practitioner and a certified group psychotherapist based in West LA since the early 90s. Um, Andrew's specialty is in the trauma, in trauma and the addictions. He has served on the faculty for the Principles of Group Therapy course and taught residents for the UCLA School of Medicine doctoring program. Andrew has been mentoring, and I know this for sure, Andrew has been mentoring associates in his private practice since the late 90s. His recent book, It's Not About Sex, Moving from Isolation to Intimacy After Sexual Addiction, joins his workbook entitled From Now On, Seven Keys to Purposeful Recovery, which was released in 2014. Welcome, Sir Andrew. <laughs> Thank you, Rob. So glad to be here. Yeah, it's good to have you. How are you doing, sir? I am well. I'm really excited to be here with you today and to be able to talk about this important topic and to bounce some ideas around with you. So what makes you concerned or kind of looking at the person who's in recovery who may not be getting everything that they want out of life? Because seems to me, you know, I know a lot of people who go into program, they go for a few or 12 step programs, they go for a couple of years, they get their sobriety or whatever it is. And what more would they expect? I mean, what more would they want? They got what they went there for. Hopefully, maybe they even get it sooner. So what else would one expect from doing that kind of work? Right. So to begin with, I just want to say that we're really talking about healing in general. It's not just 12 step. It's not just therapy. It's not just acupuncture. It's lots and lots of different attempts that folks make to to try and feel better about themselves and their lives and their recovery. And oftentimes, I'll run into people at meetings. I go to meetings myself and we'll have these conversations where 
we'll talk about all the different things that we're trying to do to better our lives, better ourselves, and at the same time, running into different walls, not quite feeling content or, or comfortable in one's skin. So you're saying that people are going to get healing from alcohol and drugs or from sex addiction or various addictions, and they are able to surrender their addiction or find some way to heal, but then they don't fight quite feel fully alive. Absolutely. This is how I see it. Addiction in general, doesn't matter whether we're talking about sex addiction or any kind of addictive compulsive behaviors, is really based in brokenheartedness. And the brokenheartedness sometimes is something that happened before the addictive compulsive behavior started and oftentimes, of course, after the addictive compulsive behaviors have gotten into into a full swing. But either way, what, what really is so tragic is that somehow the brokenheartedness is, is something that people are trying so hard to heal and oftentimes, for whatever reason, they, they miss the mark and it doesn't quite seem to move towards feeling more comfortable with oneself and, and being able to feel more emotionally sober. I want to clarify terms, Andrew. So help me understand this. Like brokenhearted to me means you've been dating someone and it didn't work out and your heart is broken. And then you're going to meet someone else and you'll feel better. So I don't think that's the kind of brokenhearted you mean. So I think you mean something maybe more existential. So can you tell me more about what you mean by brokenheartedness? So actually, it, it could be a little of both. Because if somebody goes through a breakup, and then they go through another breakup, and another breakup, and another breakup, chances are there's something from their past, from their what I call their blueprint, that is a pattern that gets them into these relationships that that don't work. And so the brokenheartedness, we're really talking about something that starts from the time somebody comes out of the womb, literally. And so the brokenheartedness can begin with some ruptures in how some, someone is cared for by a parent, for instance. And if they're not cared for properly, if they're not attuned to, if they don't feel seen and heard and understood, that's the early brokenheartedness or the early attachment patterns that create that gap between what helps someone feel more secure in the world and and not. You know, I, I've heard this phrase by uh, Gabor Mate, who is a pretty famous author in the addictions of physician, and he talks about the hungry ghost. You know, the the emptiness that that addicts often wander around with. People call it the hole in the soul. And I kind of, or the donut hole that never gets filled up inside me. Is that kind of what you mean? Absolutely. I, I think the hungry ghost is is such a poignant way of describing it. And in the twelve step rooms, the idea of the hole in the soul really goes to the heart of it, where it speaks to how from from the get go, from early in in life, there's that feeling of feeling of not being lovable of not feeling desirable, of not feeling worthy. And all of that is a setup for addictions and for various kinds of brokenheartedness that often results in, in problems like problematic sexual behaviors. It's really kind of a double thing. And I, I think I talk, I talk to clients, you know, Andrew, we're 
actively doing treatment now at Seeking Integrity, and I am running treatment, which I haven't done in a long time. And I'm so reminded of how there's, it's almost, I think you kind of mentioned this, it's a double problem because I come in and I have so much brokenheartedness, if you will, shame, humiliation, sadness, a feeling of emptiness around my addiction. But then when you peel back the addiction, there were feelings like that that were there all along before I even started doing these things that make me feel bad about myself. That's right. And just to put in a plug, I'm so glad that you're back doing the clinical work and, and that Seeking Integrity has taken shape because we need more resources for the lens that looks at not just the behavior, but like you said, peeling it back and seeing what's underneath of it. And so we are talking about early developmental trauma. We're talking about what often is talked about in terms of relational trauma or relationships that have just been excruciating and and really heartbreaking, starting with parents, siblings, bullying, uh, various types of abuse, whether it be sexual abuse or uh, neglect or various types of verbal and emotional abuse. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And so you're right. It, by, by the time you see these folks, it looks like they're in this compulsive mode, like they're unable to control their behaviors and that it's something that is beyond uh, something that they can do in an outpatient basis. And then shortly thereafter, you scratch the surface and realize, wow, there's layers and layers and layers of pain under there. And and oftentimes when I'm in the 12-step room or when I'm in the room with uh, my therapy clients, that's the work that is really neglected sometimes and oftentimes not fully understood that it's more than letting go of the behaviors and staying abstinent, as sometimes it's called. So, Andrew, I mean, in terms of what you're saying about early childhood trauma and abuse and all of that, you know, it's it's always a funny thing because to me to think about because I think, well, if I was beaten as a kid, you know, why would I be abusive to other people? You would think that if I had a bad childhood that I would never want to repeat that with other people, that I would treat my family and my spouse and my kids better, that I would treat myself better. You would think that the result of being hit was I'll never hit anyone again. How can it be and why does it make sense? Because I know it does, but not to the average person necessarily, that if bad things happen to me, that I end up becoming those bad things and doing those bad things as opposed to saying, I'm never going to be like that. Right. And of course, it, it doesn't sound like it would make sense, but it's human nature that what is done to us, often we do to others. And, and the part that hopefully can intervene is that there can be therapy, there can be various kinds of addressing the issues that people go through that can really break the family legacy, right? So let's say a teenager is bullied by a parent, by a sibling, by peers at school. Hopefully, he can get some help. And if he gets some help early on, then chances are he's not going to end up doing that to others. But if it goes untreated and he's left absorbing all of that that's been done to him, it's oftentimes just a repetition cycle. It's almost kind of a numbing. I mean, if I can't feel what happened to me, if I have to sort of get through life not really feeling or knowing what happened to me, to protect myself, then I guess it's easy to do it to others and do it unthinkingly. 
Absolutely. Unthinkingly, I think, is, is the exact word. And I want to add to that because, you know, we have so many spouses, right? Family members, loved ones who say, how could you do this to me? I mean, how could you not respect or love or how could you not value? How could you lie? How could you manipulate? And, and some of that is, you know, just in the service of the addiction, for sure. But some of it is a lack of empathy for what their partners are feeling because I don't think the people we work with have a lot of empathy for themselves. And I think that's what you're talking about. Absolutely. I think the empathy piece is so important. The piece that Brene Brown talks about in terms of connection and and feeling the courage and the vulnerability to really look at what's going on inside of you and, and in connection with others. You know, I want to say something that brings in a little different piece of this because I have been working quite a bit with the nervous system these last few years. So we're not just talking about thoughts and feelings. We're talking about what happens to the body and how the body remembers these experiences and incidents and how dysregulating it truly is. And what I mean by dysregulation is it's very difficult once there's some kind of abuse or some some kind of event that's too much to process at the time. It results in in where the system is just unable to stay regulated or to stay balanced. And so oftentimes it results in things like rage or panic or or it feels like, like the accelerator is on. At other times, it feels like disconnection, shutdown, uh, dissociation, like like the the break is on inside of you. And to stay in a buoyant, resilient place is really the ultimate in recovery, in my opinion, because it's looking at the full person. It's not just how we feel or how we think, but it's also how how we pay attention to our body's cues and how our nervous system is really the barometer of whether or not we feel more like ourselves. Okay, okay. So I, have, I have a question. So when you say you work with the nervous system, I have to say that I have this picture of you sitting in your office with sort of these wet, stringy nerves in your hand, kind of, you know, moving, restringing them or something, or working with the brain. Or can you be a little more help us understand what you mean by working with the nervous system? Right. Um, it might sound funny, but nowadays I often feel like when my clients walk into my office, my nervous system is communicating with their nervous system from the very beginning of our session. And so I'm noticing things like nonverbals. I'm noticing how activated they are or how calm they are. And I'm helping my clients with what I call somatic awareness or understanding when they're more dysregulated or when they're more regulated. Well, what does somatic, somatic mean? Somatic is really a fancy word for the body. It's really about what's happening in the body. So I might say something to a client like, what's happening inside right now? Thoughts, and I might ask for everything, thoughts, feelings, any type of sensations or, or memories or past experiences, what, what's going on right now? So what you're talking about is creating awareness, I think. Deeper awareness. There was a time, Rob, when I used to only ask my clients about their thoughts and feelings. And that's helpful. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I believe in all of what it takes for us to understand what's going on in cognitively in our thoughts and emotionally in our feelings. But many years ago, when I started in the somatic experiencing process and, and in the training, 
what I started to ask was things like, what's happening in your body right now? Or I noticed you looked off into the corner and I'm wondering if you can just check inside and, and let me know what's happening at this moment. You know, and so it was just a whole new set of questions and a whole new lens of looking at um, oneself, really. So what you're talking about is, I think, that you're, you're asking a whole different level of questions. You're not just talking to the person, but you're saying, oh, I noticed when you started talking about your wife that you started twitching your leg. And what does that mean? Or what do you think that, or you're, you're asking them to come to an awareness that their body is giving them information, that it's not just coming from uh, their thoughts or their feelings. Right. And if I could add to that idea of the leg that's twitching or, or that's moving, I might say, if you could put words to what your leg is saying right now, tell me what, what might be going on. And I shouldn't say I want to kick my therapist for asking that question. That would not be. <laughs> <laughs> okay, they can say that too. I'm just kidding you. I'm kidding you in a way because I know that for your average person, it's like, look, you know, what the heck are you talking about? I'm just there to, to solve a problem. I mean, that is why people go to therapy. They have a problem. They want to fix it. And it's our job to say, hey, you know, isn't it our job to say, hey, do this, 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 and then it'll get fixed. And oh, by the way, this is where it comes from. And you need to write a, write a journal letter on that. Isn't that what therapists do? Well, sometimes those tools might be helpful. <laughs> but actually, I don't come from that approach. What I really tell my clients is, this is an opportunity to learn about yourself. This is an, a chance for you to understand what's really going on inside of you. And hopefully, based on that understanding, find ways of living a life that works better for you. But I never make any promises about fixing anything or making things better. I, I really start from the position of, let's just start with understanding yourself better because my hunch is that up to now, you really haven't been getting a, a sense of what's really going on for you. And a lot of your behaviors and choices are based on that. And I think there's more available to you. Hey there, I sure hope you're enjoying this Sex, Love and Addiction podcast. Before we continue, I'd like to remind you that if you or someone you know or love needs treatment for sex addiction, porn addiction, or co-occurring drug problems, Seeking Integrity can help. For more information, please visit our website at www.seekingintegrity.com, that's seekingintegrity.com, or call us at 747-234-4325. So Andrew, I'm going to ask you the I'm going to ask you the trick difficult question. What do you say to the person who says, "Look, I don't have the resources or the time. I don't have the ability. I have three kids. I have two jobs. My husband has left, and uh, you know I don't have the ability to go to therapy at all. I'm lucky to be able to go to a couple of online meetings and stop in." once a week at a meeting when my girlfriend shows up to hey, take care of my kids. I mean, I'm trying to say for my kids' college, how am I ever going to take on the kinds of emotional things that you're talking about? It must cost so much money and take so much time. What do you say? I know, Andrew, we're social workers. What do we say to those people? It, it's heartbreaking because sometimes there are some true barriers that get in the way of people getting the help and the support that they truly can benefit from. What I say is you do what you can do. So maybe for now it is some online connection. Maybe it's about feeling like you're not alone in what you're going through and that there's others out there that might have some wisdom or ideas that could be something that 
could be like a life raft for you. My hope is that over time, you might be able to carve out 50 minutes out of your week to find, uh, for instance, a lower fee counseling center that has some quality folks that might be able to help you and might understand more about what you're doing. And so in Los Angeles, we're, we're very lucky. We have some low fee counseling centers that will, will be available for $5, $10, $20 a session. And then there's the issue of time. So I would wonder with someone like this, are they able to ask for help? Can they ask a family member or a neighbor to look after the kids for an hour so that they can go to their therapy and hopefully bring that that therapy, that healing back to their kids and, and back to themselves? You know, Andrew, I really appreciate your standing up for a profession because, you know, that is a hard question that I ask. And yet there are, you know, if you want to become a nurse, you have to go to nursing school. And if you, and, and it doesn't matter how little money you have or, or how, you know, important it is to you, but if you can't get to nursing school, you don't get to be a nurse. And sadly, I think everybody has the right to health, happiness, and resilience as you talk about, but some of us didn't, weren't given all the tools for that when we were raised. And you want to regain the tools for that or to gain maybe some of them for the first time. And I think this is part of what Andrew's saying. You have to sit in the presence of another human being. Healing does not take place in isolation, or it doesn't take place with the same meaning in isolation. And I think really, I want to reinforce what Andrew's talking about, that even if you're not doing the kinds of advanced therapy work that Andrew's talking about, like somatic therapies or uh, body work, that um, there are even the littlest experience of sitting with another human being and who will hear your story, accept and love you is the first step toward that kind of work that we do in therapy. So um, I just really want to validate that, that Andrew, because there isn't really another way to get there that I know of. And that's really hard for me to think about with so many people who may not get to therapy. Absolutely. And we are biologically wired for connection and connection comes in lots of shapes and forms. It happens at 12-step meetings. It happens in therapy. It happens with hopefully some friends and family. But we're talking about being able to lean into the emotionally reliable folks in our lives. And that's where long-term recovery and long-term healing really takes shape. It's not just about getting tools. It's about feeling more lovable, feeling more desirable, feeling worthy, feeling like there's a, a person or persons out there who sometimes believe in us more than we believe in ourselves. Andrew, in the book, um, you talk about this. And I would imagine your book is not just for therapists. It's probably to help uh, anyone who reads it. So are there things that people could gain in this area by, for themselves by reading this? And the book is called, we don't want to make sure we everyone hears it. So the book is called it's not about the sex, moving from isolation to intimacy after sexual addiction. It was really based on my own story. It could have been an autobiography. I don't think I'm that narcissistic that I would have written an autobiography about my trials and tribulations in recovery. But instead, I started to think to myself and brainstorm with others, what are the areas of healing that are not being addressed? It's not that they're not being addressed somewhere, but I, I don't feel like there's a conversation out there about folks who are 
in the 12-step rooms for a long time, in therapy for a long time, but are still having low-grade suffering. So some of the themes that I address in the book have to do with grief, have to do with shame, narcissism, emotional sobriety, regulating the nervous system, cultivating contentment, building connection, and knowing that there's going to be some mistakes along the way and that you're going to stumble and fumble and there's nothing wrong with that. And so I I really feel that there's a dialogue that I, I hope will grow around how to really help people in the deeper sense, which comes back to what we were talking about a moment ago, which is connection, connection with self, connection with others, connection with a power greater than oneself, whatever that might mean to you. And I I don't know if I would say that connection is the highest priority in the book, but it's one of the highest priorities because without it, there is no sustainable recovery. But I might say to you, Andrew, well, hey, you know, I have lots of friends. I have, I talk to my mom all the time. I spend time with my uh, recovery buddies. You know, it's not like I don't have connection. I learned really well that in my recovery, I need, you know, healing from addiction, you need a lot of people around you. So I'm around people all the time. And yet I don't think just having people around is the kind of connection you're talking about. Absolutely. What you're describing is terrific. You're talking about friendship and fellowship and having company, right? Having people around, which is terrific. Community, absolutely important in itself. Underneath that, the question I would ask someone who has lots of people around is, who, who in your life really knows you? Who in your, re- in your life really knows what's going on underneath of that? I can say for myself that my therapist, my sponsor, my husband, a few hand-selected other people in my life really know what's going on inside of me. And that's been what's truly been the sustenance in my own recovery. But I think what we're talking about ultimately is the layers of having people around, but who are those emotionally dependable people who really can be there in a deeper way and in a more meaningful way. And I think that doesn't just involve who I pick or how I spend time with them, or it also has something to do with me. It's interesting to think about connection, relationships. You know, I, we work with people who are married. We work with people who have kids. We work with people who are gay married. We, we work with people who have relationships. They have connections. They have meaningful intimacies in their life. And yet in our work, I think we often see they're running away from them <laughs> um, rather than toward them. And maybe that's also some of what you're talking about. Right. I call that intimacy avoidance, where it looks on the surface like there's intimacy and like things are very connected and there's people around and it looks all nice and and warm and fuzzy on, on the outside. But again, if you go underneath, oftentimes there's loneliness, there's a feeling of, of deadening or not just not feeling as alive as, as someone might want to feel. And oftentimes a sense of, is this as good as it gets? So you're, are you kind of saying, Andrew, that people settle? <laughs> Absolutely. And on the one hand, there may be some value in what we sometimes call settling. If settling is bringing you contentment and it brings you a feeling that you have exactly you know the kind of 
connection and the kind of life and balance that you're looking for. Settling might mean, well, I, I didn't get to be an astronaut, right? I didn't, I didn't, I didn't get to to go out with Farrah Fawcett majors or whatever. That I'm dating myself, but um, the idea that I, we're talking about is how how do you live with a life of vitality? And this is really advanced stuff in recovery because I know at one time in my life I felt rather unsatisfied with a lot of areas of my life. And I just went along and I, I'm good at functioning. So it looks really good on the outside. But underneath, there was this erosion and this deadening that was happening. And eventually, I really had to soul search and, and get deeper into myself to decide, you know, what is it in my heart of hearts that I really desire? What, what, what do I really want? Why am I settling for something that's not fulfilling and not really bringing me vitality? And you're talking about relationships, work, in every area of life? Really every area, because it, it's hard to separate one versus the other. I, I've always had a lot of ambition and, and, and interest in learning. And, and so career has generally been satisfying for me most of the time. But I'm really talking about how across the board there was a sense of just not feeling like it was what I wanted and, and like I wasn't really paying attention to my deeper desires. So let me ask you this really quickly while I, as we get ready to close, I'm thinking that there are a lot of spouses and partners and family members, loved ones who, you know, while they wish for the, for the addict or the sex addict to find themselves, if you will, and find joy, they're also want to kill them. <laughs> and so I'm thinking that, you know, if I were a spouse listening to this, I would be thinking, well, it's great that he or she stops sexual acting out, but, but I don't want them spending five years in therapy, finding joy. Like that's, I want them spending time with our kids, with our family, with our, you know, that's where the joy is. That's where they need to be. Uh, not sitting in therapy forever. What would you say to that person, to that spouse after taking a breath? <laughs> <laughs> I would be curious about how each of them are attending to their own desires, first of all, because it does take two whole people to come together to make a, a really vibrant relationship. So so one piece would be to understand if, if they're each getting the kind of support and the kind of connection in their lives that are really meaningful. I'll give you a quick example. So in group therapy, people come in to my groups every week for 90 minutes, and their primary goal is to learn about themselves and help each other learn about themselves. And so it sounds a little esoteric in some ways, but what happens over time is that they're actually learning to have deeper and more fulfilling connections both with themselves and with others. It's like a laboratory and really a microcosm of the real world where they get to do the, the deeper work so that they can bring that back to their families and back to their spouses and back to their children and back to their community. And I believe that that's what it's all about. And I don't care if it takes three years or, or 13 years. It's a patient recovery and healing process. Do you think that some folks are too damaged that they are maybe not going to get to the joy you talk about that maybe, you know, this is not their ride <laughs> and uh, they're just going to do the best they can, but maybe they're not going to get, you know, resilience, joy, relationship, happiness, you know, all those things that really are at the top of the food chain in terms of emotional contentment. It's a sad truth that 
some people who are in the 12-step rooms, in the therapy rooms, are going to be on a different level. So it might be about feeling safe in the world or feeling safe in their own skin. It might be about trusting others and feeling like they can rely on others and ask for help. Hopefully, there's movement, but you're right. Some people are more glacial than others, <laughs> <laughs> right? And and sometimes it may not be their destiny on this ride, as you said, but instead, can they experience love? Can they experience a sense of connection? Can, can they have some level of intimacy in their life? It may not be about you know, becoming an astronaut or, or, or hitting these, these high notes, but instead, how do they really feel meaningful connection in their life in whatever context that means to them? You know, um, folks, this is my friend, Andrew Suskind. Andrew, I'm so grateful you were here today. Can you tell us again, the name of what you've written, the book that you got going out there, and also a little bit about how people can reach you. The book is called, it's not about the sex moving from isolation to intimacy after sexual addiction. And it's actually being released next month. It'll be available in June. Okay, so we're podcasting. So June could be any date, any month. So it's releasing in June of 2019. June 11th of 2019. That's correct. You have the date down. You're ready. <laughs> yes, it's it's been a, a, a long road, as, as you know, with your own uh, projects. And secondly, if you want to reach me directly, my website is very simple. It's westsidetherapist.com. And that's one word, singular, Westside Therapist. Or my email is andrew at westsidetherapist.com. Folks, I, I do want to say that um, if you're in California or in the Los Angeles area, a Andrew is a really kind, generous, loving therapist who will kick your butt if you need gut kicking. And, uh, but mostly it's just filled with a, a real compassion for his clients. And I'm so grateful, Andrew, that you're writing and you're out there. Thank you for the time you've given us today. My pleasure, Rob. Thank you for having me. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our treatment center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com. There you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide, which I think is some of the best, most useful, short-term effective intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity, as well as combined drug sex or chem sex problems. On SeekingIntegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at Rob at SeekingIntegrity.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care.